Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll see if a new twist on caramel corn had us poppin' with delight, or if we'd rather stick to the classic. Then we'll introduce an ice cream that puts our month's signature ingredient to the test in a sweet corn and raspberry delight. Finally, we'll step into our time machines and head back to the kitchens of our foremothers to see how baking techniques and ingredients have changed, or not, in the last 50 years. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, I had such a great voicemail from one of our listeners this week. I can't wait to share it with you and the rest of the preheaters. I'm so excited. We get a lot of feedback, but a voicemail is not one that often comes our way. I've rarely been so excited. (laughs) It came from someone right in my own backyard, and her name is Mar. She lives here in Olympia. Okay. And she was listening to the podcast and listening to us talk about the passion fruit puree. Well done, yes. (laughs) She gave me all of the information I needed about where to find it here in town. Fantastic. Tell me more. Well, what I love about it is it turns out there is only one place in town to find it. And so she's done all the legwork for me. She told me exactly which store to go to to get it. Love it. She said that she was using it for a Christina Tosi cake. I believe that's the... Momofuku dessert person, right? It is. Yes, exactly. I can see her using that sort of thing. I just love that we have our preheaters looking out for us and helping us out. Why I love Mar even more is that she stumbled over the words passion fruit puree. (laughs) (laughs) It's so tricky. Listeners, try it right now with us. Passion Passion fruit fruit puree. (laughs) It just doesn't work. (laughs) It just doesn't flow. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. Thank you, listener Mar. I absolutely loved hearing that message. And as a reminder to the rest of you, anytime you want to send us a comment or a question, of course, we love your emails and your Facebook posts, but we love your voicemails as well. And the number is 802-276-0788. It will go straight to voicemail. No one answers that line, so you don't have to be really nervous when you call it you'll have the option to re-record if you didn't like the message that you left. So go ahead and give it a try. 802-276-0788. I really wish we could say operators are standing by, but alas, (laughs) only voicemail is standing by. But we would love to hear from you. Thank you, Mar, as well, for being right there and on it with the passion fruit puree. Thank you very much. (laughs) So much fun. Hey, Andrea, speaking of loyal listeners, it is the third week of June, and if you've been listening for a while, you may say, Stefan, what are you still doing in London? (laughs) Burning question on the preheaters' minds. We're still here. We are happily still here for at least another year, so lots more fun in store for us with Andrea, one of us being on this side of the Atlantic and one of us being on the other, lots of traveling still coming our way and food ingredients and all of that. Thrilled to stay for lots of reasons, not the least of which some great upcoming content for the show. 
Yeah, as much as I would like to have you just right up the road, I have to say that having you move so far away has actually probably intensified our friendship because we schedule our calls and we schedule our visits. (laughs) No, it's so true. We talk and in fact, we may even see each other more. And we, we did, do. even mm-hmm. when you're 60 miles away from each other. It's one of those things, what does Gretchen Rubin say, that when something can happen anytime, it doesn't. But when you have to actually schedule, yeah, it's pretty incredible. We talk all the time. Yeah. And since I have to come, since I have to come, let me just complain about that, all the way to London, <laughs> you know, once I get there, I stay. <laughs> it's hard to get rid of me. So <laughs> so true. I can't just be like, okay, that was a nice lunch. Bye. Right. <laughs> I am glad you are willing to tough it out for another year for us and the listeners. And I really do enjoy just that different style of eating, the different style of cooking. Yeah, definitely a different style of baking. So it's really fun for me, I know, and I hope for our listeners as well. So thank you so much to you and your family for extending your stay a little bit longer. Well, we're absolutely delighted to do so. Thank you very much. Well, speaking of baked goods, what we're taking a look at this week is something called zebra corn that came from the website The Spruce Eats, and this is basically a homemade caramel corn. It has very few ingredients, 15 cups of popped corn, which I think you and I both decided to purchase ours, yes, as opposed to popping up some corn. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yes. And you know, actually, it didn't turn out to be that much you know that's it's so light it's so airy that there's a lot of air in that cup as opposed to actual product I ended up only having to buy one just sort of regular size bag I bought the one at Trader Joe's they do say in the recipe head notes that if you buy pre-popped corn you make sure you have one with as few ingredients as possible so I checked mine and it had three ingredients popcorn oil and salt so I decided that was perfect yeah It had 16 cups in the bag, so I was all set for my 15. Yes. There's also a little bit of salt, butter, sugar, and corn syrup, and baking soda. Of course, that is for making the homemade caramel. And then for the topping, a mixture of white chocolate chips and dark chocolate chips. Those are the ingredients. Stefan, why don't you walk us through making it and tell us how it turned out for you? Well, we were just talking about when you come to visit me, and last time you were here in the spring... You were laughing because when I have a recipe that I love, I annotate it at the top and I'll say something like, yum, yummy, yummo. And you were like, look at this one. It says like, yum, yum, yummy, yum, yum, yummo. (laughs) The yum rating is not scientific, but I know that you know exactly what you mean by it. May I just say, Zebra Popcorn has received... Five yums from me. (laughs) Yum, 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 yum. Oh my gosh. That is high praise indeed. I could not believe how good this was. Andrea, are you a fan of like a Cracker Jack? Okay, so in my recipe notes, when we got to the end of step number three, when you pour the caramel mixture over the popped corn, I wrote, oh my gosh, it's just like Cracker Jacks. Cracker Jack. At that point, I was kind of annoyed that it didn't have peanuts in it (laughs) because that is one of the things I love about the Cracker Jack. I would always open the box and first dig for the prize and then dig for the peanuts. (laughs) (laughs) So believe you me, I was feeling exactly the same. Fresh caramel corn, I just think has got to be one of life's great pleasures. And this recipe was amazing. As you just said, you were making a homemade caramel. I also went with a pre-popped popcorn. 
you know, mainly because we did not bring our air popper because of voltage issues, <laughs> you know, my, me and my voltage issues. So I bought a nice high quality bag. The other thing to think about, frankly, is also in the header, it says, you know, be careful because you don't want any kind of half popped or unpopped kernels getting into your mix, mm. which could be really dangerous because yeah. it's all covered with this luscious caramel. You're not going to see those. So in my bag, I'm not sure about yours, Andrea, they're, they were pristine. They were the most perfectly popped popcorn yep. kernels I've ever seen. Mine too. There's clearly some filtering going on. Whereas when I pop my corn at home, I feel like I always have at least like a quarter cup of yeah. unpopped kernels at the bottom. So yeah. I do think it's the way to go. I, you know, obviously we don't have a taste test to say whether it made a big difference. But once you're drenching it in the <laughs> caramel and the chocolate, I don't think, you know, maybe a fresh popped corn is going to stand out over a nice fresh bag that you buy at the grocery store. I mean, certainly if you bought a stale bag, that would be different. Yeah. But check the date on the one you buy at the grocery store, go home, do it fairly quickly, and I think you're good to go. So the rest of this was fairly easy. You're making just a really luscious caramel there with the salt, butter, two cups of brown sugar, and your corn syrup. So you are bringing that to a rolling boil, stirring that frequently, and boiling it hard for five minutes. And you know, whenever you're working with hot sugar like that, you really want to take care. You want to make caramel on the day you are making caramel. Don't get distracted by your phone or by the door or by yep. whatever else. Just really be doing that. Then you mix in the baking soda. It kind of foams up. So that's another reason you want to use a larger saucepan than you might originally reach for because it does grow as you're making that. Yep. You then pour this over the popped corn, mixing it thoroughly with a large spoon. Now, Andrea, my caramel started to set really quickly, so I had to work very fast. How did that step go for you? The recipe starts out with step one saying to place the popcorn into two 13 by 9 inch pans. I, for some reason, didn't like that instruction. And instead, I placed all of my popcorn into a big bowl. Oh. I think because I was too worried about trying to stir it in the pans. Oh. I have one of those enormous, huge stainless steel bowls. I call them like food service bowls that you get from like a cash and carry. Yeah, I know what you mean. So I put all my popcorn in there because I really wanted everything to be well coated in the caramel. Yes. I did find that it started setting up very quickly as well, but I had a lot of room to move because I had that bowl with the really high side. So I gave it all a good toss and I felt like it got great coverage. That's a really good tip because what I ended up doing is putting it on one very big roasting pan instead of the two smaller ones mm, for okay. pretty much that same reason. Also, it just – it wasn't really filling, too. I felt like it could all fit on one just fine, at least the size pan that I had. Yeah, you know me. I'm, I'm not looking for any reason to use multiple pans. So in the recipe, step one has the two 9 by 13 pans, and then step five has spreading it out on two 15 by 10 inch pans. Right. Well, I was not about to use four pans. Right. So yeah, same. I just use the one big bowl and then I spread it out. I actually spread mine out on my sheet pans, my 11 by 18 okay. pans. Yes. I didn't want to have layers so then you might have naked popcorn. You know what I mean? Agree. <laughs> okay. You want it all to be kind of enrobed yes. in this delightful caramel. Yeah, yeah me yeah. too. Yeah. I just do think you have to work fast in that step. And then what you're doing is you're popping it in the oven to bake for 60 minutes stirring about every 15. I think that's kind of hardening up the caramel. I'm not exactly sure what that step is doing aside from really coating all of the popcorn solidly again. What do you know about baking in this step, Andrea? Um, I, I know very little about the why <laughs> in this step, but I can tell you that I, since I knew very little, I decided the best thing to do would just be to continue to taste it every 15 minutes. <laughs> 
And honestly, now I know why they have you start with 15 cups, because I think by the time I got down to my final, final finished product, I was probably down to 10 cups, just based on how much I ate as I went along. I do want to back up a little bit before step four, which is baking these in the oven for 60 minutes. I put parchment paper down on my two 11 by 18 pans, because you've got all that caramel and... Mm -hmm. You know, you, you think about caramel in the oven for over an hour. I thought, oh, my gosh, if that just goes straight mm -hmm. onto my pans, mm -hmm. it's going to be a big mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead, it, it went onto my parchment, which was easy peasy cleanup. Yeah. But for those of you who don't use parchment. Like your co-host. <laughs> Uh-oh. Who's still scraping the caramel off her jelly oh, roll pan. no. Oh, I wish I had. Well, I didn't know. You know, we always send pictures of the finished product, but rarely do we send pictures of the finished pan. And I yeah. think I just sent you the picture and it said, aftermath. <laughs> yeah. And see, oh, that's funny. See, I thought you were communicating, like, that it was devoured. I, I didn't realize aftermath meant, oh, my gosh, look at this disaster. Because what I wrote on my notes was, clean up. Don't panic. It's just sugar. <laughs> Let it soak in the sink yeah. in hot water yeah, yeah. and it will disappear. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. If you don't use parchment or you don't use your silicone mat and you've got that, you know, toasted sugar all over your pans, don't freak out because you just put it in the sink with a little bit of hot water and it'll melt right away. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, that is my only quibble with this awesome recipe. Then you have your delightful, I keep saying these words, delightful, luscious. It really I was. Know. It was so good. It was. So you have everything coated in the caramel. It's been in the oven for 60 minutes. You've been nibbling it and stirring it every 15. You take it out and then you have a stripe of melted white chocolate chips and then dark chocolate chips. Andrea, I loved it so much, just plain, that I did do this on a portion of mine, but I really don't think you needed it. It was already so good. I do think the addition of peanuts would be a really nice salty hit of flavor. The chocolate for me, it just went a little step too far almost. I think it was really, really great without it. Oh, so I had a similar experience. Because I had the two pans, the first pan I drizzled very lightly with the melted white and dark chocolate chip mixture. Yeah. And the second pan, I used all the rest of it. So it had quite a heavy coating. Okay. When I let it cool down and I was tasting it, I liked the one with the very light chocolate so much better. Yeah. I, and I think it's, yeah. I'm with you. I mean, I just love that caramel corn flavor. So I thought it was fabulous. I wrote down that my daughter said, hot caramel corn is the best thing ever. <laughs> I totally agree. I made it on like a, I don't know, let's say a Thursday night, knowing that I was going to bring it to my daughter's school on Friday. It was their teacher appreciation kind of situation. And it was so funny. I pulled out one of my big Tupperwares to go because I thought, well, I've got to fit, you know, 15 cups of this homemade caramel corn into this container. Well, <laughs> between Thursday night and all of the tasting I had done and then mm -mm. my daughter and then my husband, I went to load it into the pan or the Tupperware on Friday morning. And I was like, Oh, it's only half full. I'm not kidding. I think we <laughs> ate half of it. Oh, I, I completely believe you. Uh, my husband and I finished it off in less than 24 hours. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was absolutely gone. I think this would make a great gift. I mean, holiday time or any other time, yeah. it was just so good. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a gold standard recipe for caramel corn. I mean, I'm, I'm filing it under my tried and trues from here on out. I agree. I often see in recipe notes something about the storage. And there's usually a note that will say something like, 
keep it in the fridge for this long or keep it outside for this long if it lasts that long. And, you know, I always just think, oh, sure, that's what they always say. I 100% agree with this statement on this one. It says, you can store this wonderful snack in an airtight container at room temp for up to three days if it lasts that long. And I challenge you preheaters to have it last that long because (laughs) it is so good. Well, let's hope switching gears to this week's Bake Along, a completely different corny category in our month of all corn-based desserts. This is an ice cream from Jenny's Splendid, and it is a sweet corn and black raspberry ice cream. Now, listeners, you might remember we loved the Jenny's ice cream we did way back in episode 30. We did the roasted strawberry and buttermilk ice cream. It is still an episode that lots of people start with. Yes. That ice cream title just really grabs them and it remains one of the best things we've done on the show. So we're really looking forward to trying another Jenny's Splendid. And I have a couple of things to say. The first is a bit of a cautionary tale on that roasted strawberry buttermilk ice cream. I have made it numerous times. I have never had it disappoint, ever, ever, ever. Yep. And, you know, it is June. Our strawberries are coming into season. But here in the Pacific Northwest, we're a little bit slow on things, you know, ripening. Okay. I did buy a batch of strawberries. I'm guessing they were from California or something like that. It was one of those ones that are beautiful. Okay. But I don't think they had a lot of flavor. Yes. And I roasted them the way I normally do. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's weird. Usually I remember the smell of those roasted strawberries just permeating my Mm. whole household. Almost like when you're making jam. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think too much about it. And so I just went ahead and made the ice cream like I've done dozens of times before. I have to say it did not pack the punch that it normally does. And so when you don't have those full flavored strawberries, what happens is the buttermilk really comes through. The creaminess really comes through. Yeah. It was still good, but it didn't have that strawberry hit that it normally does. So I think we're safe now here, you know, in the third week of June, most parts of, uh, at least in the U.S. Yeah have some really good strawberries, but I did just kind of want to put that out there. Okay. That recipe, I think, really does depend on having really great fresh strawberries. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, my first question on this recipe is, what is a black raspberry? Is that another word for marionberry? Is that a made-up thing like blue Gatorade? Like, what is a black raspberry? That's interesting. We both marked that question, but it sounds like neither one of us looked it up. I just assumed that it meant it was another way of saying blackberry. Okay. And see, I thought it was maybe its own kind of hybrid, but I'm also thinking since I have not seen a black raspberry here, I might go with half blackberry, half raspberry and split the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would work. I mean, when you look at the recipe, it says one cup of black raspberries or blackberries. Yes. I should add Jenny's is based in Columbus, Ohio, or at least that's where they started. They're all over now. Yeah. But I wanted to shout out to listener Rachel, who is also from that area. She mentioned some Jenny's flavors and said she was thinking about us. And two that I wrote down that I really would love to try. One was the Texas sheet cake. Perfect. The other was goat cheese and red cherries. I think Jenny's just does such a great job of coming up with these interesting flavor combinations. And I'm guessing that 
she uses a lot of local ingredients. So it would be interesting to go back and look. Maybe black raspberry is something specific to, you know, this particular area that she was when she made this particular one. Yeah, maybe we can look that up for our review next week. Oh, good idea. So in the meantime, if you haven't made a Jenny's ice cream before, she follows almost a format. She has some practices she really likes to do. Yeah. One of those is to thicken the custard with cream cheese. Yes. So you'll be making sure that you pull out some cream cheese ahead of time because it needs to be room temperature. In this particular recipe, it's three tablespoons. I have used both regular Philadelphia-style block cream cheese. I've also used the whipped cream cheese, and I've had good results with both. Great. I'm glad to hear that since the lighter version is what I can find here. The other thing she does to thicken her ice creams is make a slurry of cornstarch and a little bit of milk. And that's another thing that will thicken it. Right. That's sort of her little secrets and corn syrup, which I'm guessing you might also use your Lyle's golden syrup in place of. I actually have some light corn syrup in the cupboard. I can find that here. It's not as popular, but I've got a bottle that also came in handy with our Caramel corn, you know, that's so interesting that this is another corn recipe and it also used corn syrup. Well, she always uses that corn syrup. I think that that's part of her technique to make sure you don't get the crystallization and the ice crystals yeah. in the ice cream. So, yeah, you know, I have her cookbook and I see that corn syrup in most of her recipes. And I often just use my Lyles. So it's two tablespoons. You know, it, it okay. works well. That's good to know. Her recipes and her ice creams, the product, is so smooth, like Andrea just said. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a combination of those things she really likes to do, the cream cheese, the slurry, and then the addition of the corn syrup. Now here, in this recipe, it's a little different. It's using our star ingredient, corn, and you are soaking some corn kernels, cut off the cob, and then the cob in the mixture of the milk and cream. Bring it to a boil, wait until it thickens, really infusing that custard base with the corn. Then you're straining out the corn kernels and the cobs and going on from there. So, Andrea, I can't really imagine what this will taste like, if it will be very corny, if it will be more pleasant in the background, and then the hit of the berry syrup there. So I think it's going to be really pretty. And if it's a Jenny's recipe, I think it's going to be really tasty and nice and smooth. And I should add that this is a recipe that's requiring a ice cream maker or an ice cream churner. So good point. We have done some recipes in the past that are no churn ice cream, but this one you're going to need an ice cream maker. Stefan, I have my good old, I think it's a Cuisinart two-quart ice cream maker. Yeah, um, same. Yeah. We yeah, have the same one. Yes. It works reliably and well. It's not very fancy. I think it cost me maybe 35 or $40 and I've had it for years. Yep. Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's a workhorse. There's all kinds of ice cream makers out there. You can go super fancy, lots of bells and whistles. This one that Andrea and I both have has kind of like on and off. And that's all you need. (laughs) That's all you need. One more thing about this recipe in advance that we mentioned back on episode 30. It's a Jenny's instruction, and I like to explain why I think it's in there and what I do differently. Yeah. After you make your hot custard mixture, she has you pour that mixture into a plastic bag, seal it, and submerge it in a bowl of ice water until chilled. Yeah. I find that to be pretty messy, and then you've got this plastic bag and all of that sort of thing. So I just pour mine into a container and put it in the fridge, and a lot of times I just do it overnight. Which 
is exactly what I do as well. I think what she's trying to do is cool it down quickly. And if you need to do that, that's a good way to do it. So if you don't have a lot of time to chill this several hours or overnight and you do want to submerge the custard in the ice, yeah, great. That's a great way to do it. But we did find when we made that roasted buttermilk ice cream for the first time around, it was just an unnecessary step for us. If you've got some extra time, just stick it in the fridge overnight. Well, I'm very excited about this. I mentioned at the start of our completely corny month that my husband is obsessed with corn. He's always asking me (laughs) to put corn in everything. So I cannot wait to serve this to him because finally he will not be able to say to me, you know what would be good in this is some corn. (laughs) Corn's already in there. Looking forward. Well, remember, we will have a link to these recipes in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 129, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook listeners group. Andrea, I recently took one of those online quizzes that seem to be everywhere. This one was to determine if I was an old-fashioned eater. Can you guess the results? Oh, well, almost certainly. Let's see, you love mincemeat and desperation pies. (laughs) One of your 19 for 19 baking resolutions was to make a baked Alaska, which is a dessert created in the 1860s. And I know your favorite sugar cookie recipe comes from the 1959 Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. Right. So I hardly needed to take a quiz to tell me what I already knew. I'm a pretty retro gal. But it did get me thinking about the entire notion of old-fashioned, specifically what and how previous generations baked and how that's changed, or not, from how and what we're making today. I know a big difference that I've noticed is the use of boxed mixes and canned items. You might remember we talked about this, Greg Atkinson mentioned in his book, At the Kitchen Table, and we talked about it during our Literary Bakes Month in April. He said his mom loved using canned condensed milk, which she called canned cream. Yes. As well as a fudge pound cake mix that he updated in his book for more, you know, modern sensibilities. But then he said he really couldn't taste the difference. (laughs) It's interesting, though, that they didn't really take off in popularity until after World War II. But cake mixes have been around since the 1930s. They were originally sold in a can for about 21 cents, and they included flavors still on the shelves today, devil's food and spice. And the marketing behind boxed mixes was and is genius because it blurs that line between what constitutes homemade. I mean, technically, even if you use a boxed mix, you're still making a homemade cake. The convenience and ease of a boxed mix can't be denied, but I've never been a huge fan of the flavor. So one way I've updated that for the 21st century and my own preferences is that I'll make a homemade mix. I'll measure all the dry ingredients together in a Ziploc bag. I originally came up with this plan when I was preparing for a vacation at a rented house, but you could do it anytime and just store them in your pantry for a quick grab and go. That way you just need to add your oil or butter, eggs, or other liquid ingredients. I'm with you, Andrea, most of the time. Uh Uh-oh. But I admit... I still use a boxed mix in one of my all-time favorite cakes. It's a rhubarb jello cake. This recipe has been in my family forever. It was given to us by an elderly friend when I was just a little girl. Everyone I tell about the ingredients is skeptical, but once they eat it, they are converts. It's simply a yellow cake mix, a box of any red jello with the sugar added, a bag of mini marshmallows, and a good quantity of rhubarb. That sounds like a guaranteed way to ruin some good rhubarb, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Well, have no fear. Your reaction is completely normal. (laughs) And I promise it makes such a great cake. So you cut the rhubarb, sprinkle over the dry jello mix, add it to the bottom of a 9 by 13 pan, 
top with the marshmallows, then whip up the cake mix as per package instructions and spread all of that over the top. You bake as directed and voila, it's pretty and pink and it's crazy delicious. I am not ashamed to say it's one of my favorite cakes ever and it's probably my all-time favorite cake to eat cold. This does remind me of a dish you could see at a potluck or a neighborhood gathering. Yeah. One that's been in the family forever, passed down orally or on, you know, a scrawled note or now on your podcast. <laughs> and these kind of bakes are definitely still going strong today. In fact, Chrissy Teigen, who has published two successful cookbooks, nearly broke the internet when she released her banana bread recipe that featured a box of instant pudding. I know. And Andrea, she is originally from Snohomish County, Washington, just like me. What? So I had to give her recipe a try. And though she calls it bread, it's baked in a bunt pan, and it's definitely what I would call cake. Okay. But whatever you call it, I found it a really great, easy dessert to feed a crowd. And she's not the only one incorporating boxed ingredients into her bakes. I recently noticed a cake called a Suck It To Me cake that was popular in the 1970s and also featured a boxed mix on one of our favorite websites, The Spruce Eats, which is where our caramel corn was from. Well, setting aside the convenience items popular in our mother's generation, it's interesting that many home bakers are embracing the tools and techniques used by an even earlier generation. Think about the huge trends we see now for buying local, cooking in season, baking from your pantry. These are all ways that just make good sense for the economic, environmental, and most importantly, tasty reasons, and they were just a way of life for our grandmothers. It's true. Grandma may have had to bake her own bread, but today many people choose to for taste or dietary reasons or just because they enjoy it. Likewise, made from scratch is a huge trend. Canning and preserving, avoiding preservatives. These things that previous generations did out of necessity are choices many home bakers make today. And while our mothers or grandmothers probably relied on one general purpose cookbook for everything from soup to nuts. For my mom, it was the orange-covered 60s edition of the Betty Crocker cookbook, which is also the first cookbook I started baking out of. And my mom loved a cookbook called the River Roads Cookbook. It was a reliable Louisiana community cookbook. But today, oh my gosh, there's a cookbook for every taste, gadget, cuisine, and cooking method. Speaking of appliance-focused cookbooks, I'm laughing thinking back on my childhood memories of trying to make everything in a new appliance. A pound of bacon in the microwave. <laughs> I know what we did when my parents came home with one. I think we used two whole rolls of paper towels. <laughs> We can still see ourselves doing that today with new appliances. I think I recall you saying you've done things with your sous vide or with your Instant Pot that were just as easily and quickly done with a good old-fashioned appliance. Yeah, guilty as charged. Although, in my defense, I often think I am trying to use a new appliance as much as possible to justify the cost and the counter space. But I am drawn to these new appliance cookbooks, even though I noticed when I did my cookbook swap back in October 2018 that appliance cookbooks were definitely one of the most popular items being donated. And even though many bakers, ourselves included, obviously, rely on the internet for recipes, cookbook purchases show no sign of slowing down. In fact, cookbook sales increased 25% from 2017 to 2018, and forecasters expect that trend will continue. Unlike digital formats, cookbooks can become almost like a baking diary. Pages get turned down, notes are jotted in the margins. The sign of a well-loved cookbook is always that cracked spine and splotches and stains on the pages. 
And plus, for more and more people these days, getting off of their screens is a goal. And so escaping into a book is soothing and, in the case of a cookbook, a delicious form of stress relief. It really brings us full circle. Cookbooks can be passed down just like our favorite old-fashioned recipes. Listeners, let us know some of your favorite old-fashioned desserts, how you may have updated them for modern tastes, or why you're happily a 21st century baker. Drop us a note to hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or comment in our Facebook group, Preheated Baking Podcast Listeners. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning and next week we'll finish off our completely corny month with a Brazilian style coconut cornmeal cake that may be a new favorite. Also, we'll see how adding our star ingredient to ice cream played out. Plus, abracadabra, we've got a few magical kitchen tips and techniques that will have you asking, how did they do that? Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to our full show notes every week when the episode is released, please subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we're at preheatedpod. And if you like our show, please do tell a friend and subscribe and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.